Dr. Garang Dutt is a 2017 Roth Siegel John Monash Harvard Scholar who resettled in Australia under the Humanitarian Program for Refugees in 2005. He is a fellow in health systems at the Australian National University and an advisor action researcher at the Australian Department of Health. His education at the University of Melbourne, Harvard University and the University of Oxford has not distanced him from the shared experiences of other members within Melbourne's South Sudanese migrant community. His recent article published by the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Public Health draws on past experiences from living in a refugee camp with a view to informing health and economic policies. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Garang Dutt to the podcast. Garang, a very warm welcome to you. Thank you very much, Justin. So let's go back to um, where you first came to Australia. You arrived as a refugee from South Sudan. Can you tell us a bit about that journey to Australia? Uh, thank you, Justin, for this um, discussion. Uh, as you mentioned, I arrived in Australia uh, with a refugee background. I had lived for over a decade in a Kenyan refugee camp, having just um, moved across the border from South Sudan where there was war for a long time, and I was born into that war. So I grew up uh, very much in a setting which was either war zone, uh, displaced camp, which means internally uh, um, uh, settled population within the borders mm -hmm. of the birth um, and then crossing the international border which then made me a refugee um, and that's mm. where I, I grew up in Kakuma refugee camp which is northwest of Kenya uh, in a very um, semi-arid environment and so initially really hot temperatures uh, there were no shelters when we started there but incrementally the camp mm. grew and infrastructure grew so I started my classrooms uh, basically in open ground, writing in dirt, and subsequently having proper classrooms with walls and roof over us and um, some exercise books. And so it were from those beginnings that I, I um, witnessed a lot uh, to do with the human conditions, um, access to healthcare, uh, the, the nature of health system itself when, when it, it is locked and now where we have well-functioning health system. So I'm able to compare and contrast from those beginnings to now. That's amazing. Uh, were you with your family in, uh, in those camps? Yeah, so I subsequently resettled um, in Australia with mum as well as siblings. And they're all in mm. Melbourne, older sister, two younger brothers. And um, we, we were all on the same program. So the humanitarian visa uh, that brought us to Australia was for family. And so initially uh, came to Melbourne in July of 2005. I had mm -hmm. at that time uh, been at year 10, uh, year 10 level, which is form two in Kenya. So how, how old was that? You're about, you're about 14, 15? No, I was about 17. Um, 17, so, okay. Yes. So I, I arrived um, in, in, in Kenya. Uh, people don't necessarily start schooling um, when mm -hmm. they are supposed to, as they do in Australia. <laughs> okay. yep. So when when I moved into refugee camp, 
um, we were able to just access whatever was provided. And so the various uh, international agencies which were based there, such as Lutheran World Federation and um, another one, uh, DWS, which is also German, uh, catered for education, while UNHCR provided other services such as food distribution, uh, water and healthcare was provided by International uh, Committee for Red Crosses, which would include mm-hmm. Australian Red Cross as well. Uh, so they catered for healthcare. So various agencies um, provided various things to the refugees. And so when education started, um, I, I started uh, when it became available rather than because I was old enough. Um, because some yes. people who were uh, a decade older than me were in my class in primary school. <laughs> and so yeah, okay. when I arrived, uh, I was 17 <laughs> and I had been to uh, Form 2 level. Uh, because in mm-hmm. Kenya, the other hurdle is that uh, high school was not free. So while um, there was this semblance mm-hmm. of free education within the camp uh, provided by the international agencies, we were within the Kenyan education system. And we had to compete with meager resources in the camp, um, no library, not enough lighting overnight, um, and having to study for national exams and compete with everyone else in Kenya who had better resources for sports at um, high school. And so I was fortunate enough to, to do very well at the end of uh, year eight, where everyone sits national yes. exam to then exit primary school into high school and perform in the top four. And so I was able to secure a scholarship um, from Jesu Refugee Service. And that's how I first left the camp for a boarding school in Kenya, which is now a national school. And um, so I went to a boarding school starting at year nine level, which is form one equivalent in Kenya. There are four years of of high school in Kenya. And I was intent on doing those um, while living in boarding school under this scholarship. Uh, But because the resettlement program kicked in and we got accepted on humanitarian visa to Australia as a family, then I resettled uh, when I was um, uh, two thirds of the way through year 10. And had I actually mm. went to year 12 level uh, in Kenya and exited with good grades as well, then I might have ended up in Canada because this is where this scholarship program took the high school graduates. Um, well, we're very, we're very lucky to have you. Yeah, and I'm, I'm very lucky too to be here because um, the rest of family was able to come with me on the same journey, um, unlike if I had resettled in Canada and then having to work on bringing them on another trip. Um, in addition, uh, I have been able to come at the appropriate time, such as to uh, enter high school at appropriate level, complete VCE, uh, so year 11 and 12. And so my grades could count for applying to university and also fortunate yes. to have been at university, um, to be in Melbourne um, because there are great universities there as well and um, medical, medical schools. Because at that point, I was only two years in Australia and I was still familiarizing myself with my, um, my environs, yes. not, not yes. aware of where things are in Melbourne, let alone actually applying to university and studying medicine. Mm. So it was a very sharp uh, learning curve, but I was intent on studying medicine at that point. Tell me, were there any other countries, uh, you mentioned Canada, in the mix? You've ended up in Australia. So how was it that... Um, you made the journey to Australia? So um, the initial resettlement program started with USA. 
uh, uh, okay. during, during Busha demonstration, uh, mm. various um, church groups uh, noted the plight of people from South Sudan. At the time, Southern Sudan, uh, the country has been at war for two decades. And um, the events of September 11 is spotlighted Sudan and the crisis in there, particularly because um, Osama bin Laden happened to have been hiding out there for a decade and planning various attacks, both um, across Eastern Africa, uh, such as Nairobi and um, in Tanzania, as well as in US. Mm. And so this brought um, Sudan conflict to the attention of the US government. And then various church um, church groups have also been advocating um, in context that uh, a lot of people in Southern Sudan were Christian, were being persecuted because at that point, um, the war had started at a point when uh, the president of the Sudan at the time uh, imposed Sharia law across the whole country. And so okay. there was this uh, mix of global politics into it and years of people who have been um, in displaced camps, uh, refugee camp and ambivalent, not able to go back to where they were born and not able to seek asylum elsewhere uh, where they can get um, services and uh a lot of people were in limbo. And so USA at the time, it started a resettlement program, initially targeted at uh, a group that they call unaccompanied minors. Uh, because as you can imagine, um, in the setting of the Sudan at the time, uh, there weren't a lot of uh, telecommunication uh, facilities. And so when war breaks out and people get attacked in whatever locations, uh, they disperse and they're kept wherever mm. they feel safe. And so they don't necessarily notify the other family members about where they are and where they are okay. headed and could be several months or even years before they are known whether they're alive or not until word of mouth gets around or Red Cross um, is able to facilitate uh, handwritten letters to be exchanged between various displaced camps or refugee camps. And this is how people track themselves. But that meant there were a lot of people who were unaccompanied minors people who didn't have either mom or dad and they're young, mm -hmm. they're under 18. And there were many of those in refugee camp that I was in. So this was the initial target group for resettlement uh, by the U.S. government. And so that program initiated a process where people who can come and profile stories and facilitate the resettlement process, do the application, were able to come to the refugee camp because in as much as people had needs and wanted um, to resettle and could probably um, gain more opportunities when they resettle, there was no uh, mechanism at that point for people to actually resettle. The refugee camp was at least um, hundreds of kilometers away from Nairobi, the capital, which is where the Australian um, High Commission is based. And so yes. there were no mechanisms for people to even apply to, to come to Australia. There was no access to humanitarian visa uh, program where people can apply, even if they were um, legally registered as refugees in Kenya. So, Garang, tell me, you arrive in Australia and you have your first experience in a Melbourne classroom. Uh, what was that like, walking into uh, the school in Australia and, and trying to make friends uh, with um, with new classmates and, and try to understand what they were teaching you? Yeah, so it was um, uh, it was a sharp 
uh, curve has, as I mentioned briefly before, in various ways. Uh, first of all, I arrived and all my referees were now left in Kenya. So all the teachers who ever taught me <laughs> were all in Kenya. Yes. And there was no one that um, could could sort of um, vouch for me, uh, especially when Back I... You up. Yes. Mm. So having just arrived from a refugee setting and uh, with ambitions to then subsequently go and study medicine, which I quickly understood was a very um, a competitive process, uh, then it it okay. became it became apparent that um, a lot of my teachers initially didn't believe that I was going to be up to the task uh, because mm-hmm. uh, part of the challenge was that a lot of my teachers had been exposed to individuals who who are of South Sudanese or Sudanese background, but who had come ahead of me. However. Um, they had had some challenges with education system here, mostly because their previous education was based on Arab, in, in Arabic pattern. So they have not been in English class before because they happen to have, mm-hmm. have lived in Egypt or another um, yes. okay. Arabic-speaking country. So it was an anomaly uh, to most of them to then start uh, seeing people coming from Kenya and were relatively competitive or competent in English, and and so that was one of the one of the challenges that I had to confront at the point of admission because at that point um, I suspect it is uh, still the case now there are English language programs that people tended to be channeled into, so those who have arrived in mm. Australia and didn't have uh, good grasps of English language. Uh, and who might therefore have difficulty um, taking on some of the classes that they're signing up for would initially be taken to the English language school uh, for this crash course or program in English. And that was sort of an automatic um, channel that a lot of people of South Sudanese background or Sudanese background were channeled into, except when um, I then um, had a conversation with the admission team in in high school and they realized that I was going to be fine. So that was first hurdle. And then the second one was now selecting um, the courses that I I needed to do as prerequisites to then um, apply to um, the courses I was interested in, in university. I hope hope someone helped you with that. Yeah, so um, there were career devices uh, in, in high school and I had a brief discussion with them, but that first um, uh, first expectation that I might not be able to uh, to do well in them um, because I had just recently resettled in Australia was another um, barrier that I had to overcome. And so, having signed up uh, in in classes that were mostly sciences, um, doing chemistry, yes. physics, yep. biology, physics, math. Yes. Um, <laughs> in, in Victoria, we have a specialist math as well as mathematical method. And so I was able mm-hmm. to do those. And fortunately, I did very well in them. Um, it was Amazing. Also, also fortunate at that point that I had other friends who were older than me that I had known back in Kenya. And these friends happened to be in a university program uh, which was for people who are undertaking high school curriculum. So there's they're sitting for the VCE, but through yes. uh, Victoria University in Melbourne because they were 
um, much older than um, than the students that were allowed for um, for high school age, and so this was fortunate because it meant they actually had uh, Victoria University ID, the identity card that they can use yes, to borrow okay. books from yep. library, yep. and having <laughs> having resettled in part of Melbourne, which did have um, a lot of resources in its public library. I was then able to use this opportunity to be able to borrow books um, from university and use them for my classes. And this is how I caught up with some of the classes while I didn't have access to a lot of resources. What an incredible story. Yeah. So this 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 was a mix of various things. And so initially, um, I did a lot of um, uh, interaction with my fellow students uh, in basketball court, playing basketball and made friends through those channels. <laughs> yes. Um, and even more, when, when I start doing well in classes, then a lot of my classmates um, start joining my my group as well to to then work together on, on math and, and related subjects. And so you finished your uh, year 12 exams and you got the good news, obviously, that uh, you did very well. You must have done extremely well to get into medicine. Um, what happened then? So in, in medical school, I was eventually in um, uh, at University of Melbourne. And the, the good part of it was I was in a convenient location. So living at Ormond College uh, at University mm. of Melbourne. Ormond had initially come um, to my attention uh, through uh, Kwangli Dao Young Scholars Program, which I had been uh, nominated for. Uh, during high school years. Um, so this was okay. a program that was targeted at high achievers uh, with intent to attract them to University of Melbourne. And uh, as I understood it, about 1,200 or 12,000, I can't remember properly, had to be nominated across um, various high schools um, across the state and neighbouring areas of New South Wales as well as South Australia. And within that applicant pool, um, I was able to be um, uh, subsequently awarded Kwangli Dao Young Scholars um, Award. And this exposed the scholars early on in their high school journey to university learning and resources of University of Melbourne. I was not able to harness them very well because it required that one has reliable internet as well as computers um, to, to be able to <laughs> yes. access their online programs and resources. And I didn't have um, uh, some of those definitely not reliable internet. I was able to get uh, initially a computer has, um, has a scholarship award for doing very well in math and sciences in high school through Western Chances. Uh, but I couldn't keep up with reliable internet thereafter, having been only a year and a half in Australia. Uh, so there was this weekend where we were supposed to come together as scholars um, to Ormond College and uh, be inducted into the program and spend time there. I wasn't familiar with Melbourne at that point. I didn't know my way yes. around it. And there was no one who could take me to the location. None in my social network had been to University of Melbourne. And so I, I was aware of Ormond uh, through that context. Uh, but subsequently, living at Oman had been really uh, very good because it's convenient location, very diverse student population, studying various things and coming from different parts of the world, not only Australia. And so dinner time discussions were often um, uh, 
very rich and um, full of insights from various uh, academic background as well as cultural background and experiences and definitely enjoyed uh, my time uh, engaging in SEMO readership program, which was around philosophy, um, discussing various things about um, the nature and the contours of justice and what is the right thing to do, uh, and piqued my interest in policy, uh, uh, actually, at that point. But that convenient location also allowed me to partake in various uh, programs and initiatives. So while studying medicine, at University of Melbourne and attending clinical schools within Melbourne Health, so Royal Melbourne mm-hmm. um, um, Royal Women as well as Royal Children, I was also able to become um, research assistant to Professor Yu Taylor, who has done immense work in Indigenous eye care. And that okay. um, opened my eyes to a lot of things about um, doing policy research. Um, so a lot of evidence sits around sometimes without being able to impact policy, but um, being able to then drive policy from a research um, perspective, generating evidence and crafting that evidence in a way that matters for the decision maker and scoping out impact. So I was able to be involved across the full spectrum of that and gain critical insights into how um, one might change various things in health system. And that definitely pushed me towards exploring um, opportunities for building a skill set in, in that area. And that's what moved me towards exploring um, training and health policy subsequently. Okay. And is that how the John Monash Foundation Scholarship came about? Yes, correct. So um, when I started uh, uh, in medical school, I did not know about um, John Monash Scholarship. Uh, a lot of my okay. information was limited by lack of the relevant network. Uh, that was exposed to these things. Yeah. Just as yeah. I didn't know where University of Melbourne was and the programs that were there <laughs> until very late. Yeah. Um, I, I was able to learn about all these scholarships much later. And so it was incremental process. Subsequent reading um, exposed me to various things that were happening at Harvard University. Definitely after reading um, Atul Gawande on various um, yes. uh, things that is written about, including checklist and um, how to improve system performance uh, in surgery in his books such as Better. And while at Ullman College, I was able to win um, what was then called John Manson uh, Fellowship, which took me to New Delhi. And at that point, the, the other option was going to Johns Hopkins um, to do a placement in neurosurgery. Uh, but I was keen on looking at um, how settings like India, which are relatively under-resourced uh, and with a lot of challenges in their health system, are able to still deliver high-quality services um, in healthcare and how they innovate. And so this um, fellowship gave me an opportunity to visit um, St. Stephen's Hospital in Tisazari, which mm. happened to be one of um, uh, pilot uh, centers for Atul Gawande's checklist. And uh, I then realized some of the challenges is written about in the book uh, are actually still around. Um, but at the same time, I was able to, to see how the hospital innovates to be able to deliver um, high quality service to a relatively poor population, both within its immediate catchment area, as well as some um, slum areas of New Delhi. And so I was able to head out on a van and explore 
um, the ways that health service was being delivered in this community through mobile clinics and also um, high, um, highly technical things um, such as surgical intervention uh, in, in settings where you might not have reliable electricity coming off the main grid. So I was able to see that sort of um, uh, diversity of challenges that um, impacts on quality, even when you have highly skilled surgeons, for example, what else is needed around them to be able to deliver the quality service that they could. And, and so um, I was able to use that opportunity as a learning point. And at that point, also reached out um, uh, to Atulga one day about um, what I was experiencing there and things he's written in his book and, and also explore um, the opportunities that could allow me to be more effective at driving policy or health systems reforms. And so coming back to, to Melbourne at that point, I continued through medical school and completed um, my studies, but also continued to work uh, closely with Professor Yu Taylor. And um, that's when I started exploring as well uh, the opportunities um, that could allow me to go and study uh, in the same mm. settings where all these things were being done by individuals like Atul Gawande. And that's how Harvard University came onto my radar because, as you can imagine, when I resettled in Australia, I had never heard of Harvard University. Um, <laughs> I, I had definitely heard of Oxford University because yes. of its... Um, well, you've Ox you've, now, studied, you've yeah. now studied at both. I've studied at both, yes, um, fortunately. Uh, but I heard of Oxford uh, because of its English dictionary. This is how I heard about it um, in the cab um, because I did not have access to internet at that point. Um, so this mm. is why I, a lot of things were, were not on my radar until when I found the opportunity to, to be online and explored and also my social network grew as a result of being at Oman College and University of Melbourne and um, be living longer in Australia. Gurang, I'm just blown away by you and your career it's just uh, phenomenal so you've studied at two of the best universities on the planet and you're joining us today from canberra where you are now living and working in the australian national yes. capital tell us about the work you are doing at the moment in canberra so at, at the moment um i i'm working uh within anu to um, drive various initiatives focused on a strengthening health system. But at the same time, I am within Australian Department of Health uh, as part of a team that provides a lot of technical support to the policies um, related to the pandemic. And within that um, okay. context, I've also um, looked at um, various turns of things as the pandemic went on, uh, which includes how some of the most disadvantaged households are um, not necessarily um, uh, ex having same experience as everyone else. And so I have taken additional initiative to come and um, lead a campaign for um, improving uptake of vaccines in low-income households. Um, people that I, I know have had past refugee um, experience or the recent migrants and have various challenges accessing the health system as it is, including the um, general practice-based immunization um, strategy, as well as the okay. pop-up clinics, which are trying to make 
immunization um, convenient. Uh, I've realized mm-hmm. that uh, a major part of the challenge is not necessarily just the convenience. It's about the trust um, in vaccines. And that is kind of compounded by what has built up over time and has become known as um, a trust deficit in government or authorities. Yes. And so just having official communication through uh, television, such as SBS, um, however, um, uh, the... the the, the approach is, is to translate them so they are available in a language that might be accessible, but the platform is not necessarily um, optimal. And so when, when Canberra went into lockdown, uh, what we realized within this community is that at least uh, 40% of the cases came from low-income households of, um, of people, okay. say, people of my, my cultural background, for instance. And so... Um, I took initiative and worked closely uh, with the community leadership here, as well as ACT Health, uh, to be able to manage um, the outbreak, make sure there's compliance with quarantine, as well as um, people are sensitized towards getting vaccines. And this went very well because um, we flipped the management process of the pandemic to be more community-led rather than government-led. We get the community to initiate uh, the detailing of the strategy and co-design what might work with the support of the government and various agencies rather than what is often done uh, top-down where you devise what would be the best policy and then implement it. Mm-hmm. Um, it became more a co-design process. And this was really instrumental because uh, we have a situation where the pandemic is not so much about the medical knowledge per se. Uh, when you're talking about contact tracing, it's about the knowledge of social networks. And there are no people in government who know social networks in the community better than the community leaders. Um, the people mm. who lead those households know their social networks very well. So it was about tapping into those um, channels of authorities to harness their insights for optimal re- response. And then some of the um, uh, initiatives we took as well is um, filming short video with ACT Health uh, involving community leaders as well so that we can target the message uh, more correctly and distribute it in the channels that people tend to access, um, which tends to be social media groups, both on WhatsApp and Facebook. Um, also did focus um, discussions over Zoom, which targeted church groups, say congregations, which are more appropriate for targeting older population within this community. So these are some of the initiatives um, I've been working on as well. And this worked okay. really well uh, with the first um, community-led clinic uh, that we did in Canberra and that um, successfully immunized um, 100% of those who were registered. And we are now repeating the process so that Fantastic. we immunize as many as possible. And from here, um, we took the insights from this success and we now is scaling in nationally. So I'm working with um, health right. services and state governments in the other yes. states. Uh, definitely in a, in, in a setting like Melbourne, which has um, a large population um, of recent migrants. And mm. so um, scaling this uh, in a regionalized context because of the larger population group and decentralized health system there. So say Monash Health and Western Health and the same for South Australia. We're targeting um, health, um, health services catchment areas that are most relevant and this is fortunately working well in, in some settings where there's been more reception for it. 
um, and resourcing of the relevant team that we put together. And uh, finally, uh, Garang, as a medical professional, are you able to offer an opinion on how Australia is now faring with respect to vaccine rollout and trying to get on top of the pandemic, the coronavirus? Um, I, I think um, so far there's been confluence of, of factors, some which can be concretely um, judged from a medical perspective and some which would not be. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I tend to think that um, the, the best thing in the end is more of everyone continuing to cooperate so that we all um, get as much um, uh, immunization coverage as possible because as it is, the, um, the current vaccines reduce the um, hospitalization and, and, and rate of death within the community, and that's what needs to be done. The pandemic itself is not being stamped out completely because it's gone global, um, and there, there are likelihood of new variants. Um, so from the hindsight, it can be um, relatively easy for us to say we could have done this better, and that is um, something that should be taken on board for the future which is part of why um, my team within Department of Health is involved in documenting some of this. So doing publications around the pandemic, which has not happened a lot in the past. And this is a way for Australia to capture insights from this pandemic so that we can improve health system going forward and be more responsive. Uh, But from the initial stage, there were a lot of uncertainty, a lot of missing pieces of information about what Mm. needs to be done. And um, that, that um, vantage point had a lot of challenges which may not be appreciated very well in retrospective um, conversation. And so I, I would like to think that um, from, from the way Australians have been complying with um, the pandemic lockdown for a long part, notwithstanding some incidences of protest, um, I think we're doing relatively well in terms of um, people uh, taking leadership on on their own individual level to realize that they have a part to play in it, uh, regardless of the resourcing the government has put behind it, regardless of um, the political decisions um, and whether they're correct or not. Uh, it comes down to what every other Australian is doing. Well, Dr. Garang Dort, it's been an honor to talk to you today on the podcast. You're an inspiration and you are just a wonderful human being, and we're very lucky as a country to to have you with us. So thank you for joining us and uh, keep up the good work. We will look forward to following your career uh, with much interest in the years ahead. Thank you so much for joining us on the Scholars Podcast. Thank you for having me.